Uh, good. Well, it's morning here. Good evening, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> it's it's uh it's good to be here. Um, a couple of things. So, uh, for everybody who feels willing, uh, I'd like it if you would turn on your video. I don't know if uh if that's allowed or not, but if um if you are happy to and you feel okay about it, I I like you know seeing everybody. I think it's fun. Um, the other thing is, uh, we are spontaneously getting a new roof. So, if you hear exciting noise in the background, here's here's what's going on. Let me show you. Ooh. So that's that's what all that is, right? So right now, our roof is just wooden beams. So that's what's happening there. Um, okay. I was asked to give you a little bit of a background about myself. So I'm in California in Los Angeles. Um, I am the principal of the Christadelphian Heritage School here. Um, so yeah, that's fun. We, and we have one of our students. So that's exciting. So I, I just saw that Sadie is here. So good morning, Sadie. Nice to see you. <laughs> so, so that's what I do. I've done that um, now. It'll, it'll be seven years soon. Um, and I just love it. I, it's what I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. I think it's great. Um, I, I teach a lot of different classes there. Usually, you know, whatever is actually needed. So I end up doing a lot of like algebra because um, people don't want to teach that. <laughs> but, but uh, um, you know, I, I teach Bible. I, sometimes I do Hebrew. Um, what else? Holocaust studies sometimes. So a lot of different things. Anyway, uh, if you ever have any questions about any of that, you can ask me. Whenever. Okay, what we are going to talk about today is, um, the title is Giving Grace, Removing Judgment and Anger from Our Lives. So, um, those of you who maybe have heard me before or who know me, you might know that when I give a class, I like to, uh, I don't like to tell stories. I don't know if you noticed that, but I really, I really like to like stick it stick with the Bible and whatnot, but in this class, I'm actually going to tell a story. So I, I feel like this is relevant. Um, so see what you think about this. Um, this topic has been on my mind for about the last year or so, and I recently wrote a book on it called Giving Grace. So if, if this intrigues you or you find it helpful, um, you can you know, get the extended version in the book. Um, the reason that I did that, here's the story. The reason that I did that uh, was that every year, usually, except for this year because everything's crazy, every year my wife and I drive out to Virginia. So we're in California, and uh, we drive all the way across the country. It's about um, 3,000 miles. We drive across the country over the summer to go to Virginia because that's where her parents are from. Um, and it's always, you know, it's really fun. It's exciting. You cross-country road trip, all of this. Um, well... On the road trip last year, I came to an interesting realization about myself that it took me a while to admit. So uh, I'm going to admit it to you now. We were in Kansas City. So I don't know how many of you are aware of where Kansas City is. It's like right in the middle of the United States. It's not in Kansas, weirdly enough. I don't know, I don't know why. But <laughs> so Kansas City, that's where we were. We were driving to Kansas City. Um, and we had been driving for a few hours. Now, those of you who have road tripped before, you might be aware that there are um, 
different hotels that you can stay in that give you um, food, right? So a lot of hotels will give you like breakfast in the mornings when you wake up or whatnot. And I always thought that was the most awesome thing because it was free food, right? Like that, it's hard to get better than free food. So I found this hotel that would give you a free dinner as well. So like you get free breakfast in the morning, but you'd also get free dinner that night. And I thought, wow, like this is amazing. Um, we have to go to this hotel. So we booked the hotel and we got ready to go. Um, but they would only give you dinner from 5 to 7 p.m. at night. Okay. You had to get there between that time. And I thought, oh, no problem. You know, we're only driving three hours today. This is going to be easy. 5 to 7 p.m. Well, as we're driving, you know, different things happen and whatnot. And it just so happens that we get there at 7.10. And I, like, I, like, can't, I can't control myself. I am so angry because, you know, I have four children, right? So, like, we ha it's me, my wife, our four children. Like, you think about dinner, that's a lot of money. So I, so I was thinking, like, you know, wow, we're going to save, like, all this money having free dinner and all that, and we miss it by 10 minutes. Now... Um, my anger was not directed at the hotel, so I wasn't thinking like, you know, if only they had made the window longer. My anger, as it turned out, was directed at my wife, because I was thinking, you know, oh, if only she didn't have to go to the bathroom, or, you know, whatever, like, like, then we wouldn't have to deal with this. We would have made it on time. And, uh, so I got really mad about free dinner and missing it. That night... I was reflecting on the day's activities, which I think is a good thing to do. And I realized, wow, that's really ridiculous. I like got extremely angry with my wife about missing free dinner. And like, and she really didn't even have anything to do with this, right? Like, so it, it was really, it was not good. So the next day we got in the car and I said to her, you know what, like, I am so sorry. That was really, I shouldn't have done that. Like, I made a mistake, right? Uh, and it was probably included with it were things like, and I'm a really bad person, you know, all of that. <clears throat> and so I said to her, so my goal is this whole day, you know, we're going to be in the car for eight hours. This whole day, I'm not going to get mad. No matter what, I won't get angry. So we were driving, and it came time to figure out what to eat for lunch. So, I turned to the children and I said, okay, kids, like, what would you like to eat for lunch? And here's the options. And they couldn't decide on what they wanted. And I found myself getting frustrated because I was thinking, you know, all I asked you was, do you want to eat at Chick-fil-A or do you want to eat at, like, Chipotle or something? Like, this is not complicated, right? And the kids, you know, are, oh, I want to eat here. No, I want to eat here. And so I turned around and I said, kids, this is totally ridiculous. You have to decide where you want to eat. I'm really mad, right? And, and I realized, oh, no, I got mad again. Like, and I couldn't believe it. And it was over, again, something ridiculous, right? The first was free dinner. The second was, like, that my kids couldn't decide where they wanted to eat. You know, they're, like, five years old. So, <laughs> anyway, I realized I couldn't even make it three hours without getting mad. It was at that point that I had an epiphany. And that epiphany was that I have an anger problem. 
that I can't even make it for a few hours without getting mad. So when we got home from this trip, I decided, you know what, I'm going to study anger according to the Bible and see what does the Bible actually say about anger. Um, and it was in that study that I realized that for years I had been justifying anger using the Bible and actually using the Bible incorrectly to justify my anger. So what we're going to do today is um, I want to take you through a little bit of that revelation for me um, in that we are going to look first at, I think, a common justification for our anger, and then we're going to see what does the Bible actually say about anger. So this is divided into two parts here. Uh, we're going to look at um, the common justification for anger, and then what does the Bible say about anger. If you wanted to divide it another way, it's really going to end up being, we're going to look at something called the imprecatory psalm, and then we're going to look at what is, uh, how did Christ deal with anger. So that's the plan. Um, has anybody here heard of the imprecatory psalms before? Those of you who have your camera on, you can just raise your hand if you've heard of that. Imprecatory psalms. All right. I get to teach you a cool new word. Okay, so imprecatory, that means um, like cursing. So, uh, and it's a word, you know, that's still used today. Uh, although it's considered, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says next to it, archaic, right? <laughs> but, but some people use it still. Uh, and it's kind of fun, right? Like if somebody's being really, you know, yelling at you or whatnot, you can say that. And that'll probably totally derail like everything they're saying, right? You can be like, whoa, whoa, you sound really imprecatory right now. And they'll be like, what? And, you know, it'll, it'll just change everything. They'll probably be like, wow, thanks for teaching me that new word. Not just kidding. They probably wouldn't say that. But hey, you never know. So imprecatory means cursing. So uh, the idea behind this is um, these are psalms in which uh, they like pray for curses or they pray for harm to come on certain people. So um, just take a look. Let's go to uh, Psalm 58. This, this was really um, my first introduction to this. And I think you'll see as we go through this how this becomes that justification. So let's take a look at Psalm 58. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV, just in case anybody's curious. ESV is my, my favorite translation. So this is Psalm 58. This is a Psalm of David. Most of these imprecatory Psalms are. They're Psalms of David. And just take a look at what he prays for. Okay, so these are the kind of things I think that uh, we would be surprised to hear someone pray for. We're at Psalm 58. Let's read verse 6. Ready? Psalm 58, verse 6. Listen for the imprecations. Verse 6 says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Now, uh, I mean, you've probably read this before, right? Because we do this in our readings. Um, I don't know how well this is stuck before, though. So let's just think about what each verse is saying. So verse 6 says, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. So, I mean, when I read this, I picture, like, this is basically a prayer for someone to be, like, punched in the mouth, right, so that their teeth fall out. Now, 
Can you imagine, like, what if somebody came to you and they were like, well, you know, you really upset me yesterday. So I prayed that God would like punch out all your teeth, right? You'd probably be like, whoa, <laughs> like, go, go away. Like, I don't, I don't really want you near me. Like, you're kind of scary, right? So, I mean, I think that would probably be how you would react. And yet, like, that's what it says here, right? In verse six, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions. Like, ripping out people's teeth, that hurts. Um, verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Uh, I think verse 8 is probably the most poignant one here. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Now, uh, I don't know what you were like as kids, but when I was a kid, and maybe you'll think I'm like sadistic or something. I don't, I don't do this anymore, but this was, you know, I, I was a little boy. And uh, I used to think it was really interesting to like find snails in the backyard and like dump salt on them because then they like got all bubbly and whatnot. Have you ever seen that before? You do that and they, they like squish up and they bubble. Anyway, that's what David is saying, right? He's asking God, like, please do that to these people. You know, I want to see them bubble and like, bleh, you know, melt, right? Let them melt like a snail. Okay. This is serious. Now, the reason that we're looking at this is again, uh, maybe you don't want to admit this, and maybe you haven't, but I would venture to say there's probably some of us out there who have, uh, you know, prayed for bad things to happen to people because, you know, we have been frustrated by them or we think that they're doing something bad, you know, and so that, that badness needs to stop. So we probably haven't prayed, you know, punch out their teeth, or we probably haven't prayed things like, rip out their fangs, or make them melt like a snail. But we probably have prayed, you know, harmful things about people before. So if that's you, you can just think about this. So Psalm 58 is interesting because it's clearly biblical, right? And it's clearly showing, you know, this is a way that um, David felt about people. And it's interesting when you look at, okay, well, what, what do we do about this? You know, if this is biblical, are we being told... Well, this is what we're supposed to do. You know, we are supposed to pray about people like this. Um, and, you know, when you look at what do people do with this, it's kind of fascinating. So um, different churches, some churches have actually taken this out of uh, what they read. So, you know, when you, when you come to like Psalm 58, if you're going to read from the lectern, right? When you come to Psalm 58, well, you just skip that part, right? You, you're just like, oh, look, uh, we'll read Psalm 59, actually. You know, that kind of thing. So, so some churches have said that. They've, they've said, well, these imprecatory psalms, like, they're kind of weird. We don't know what to do with them. So we just won't talk about them, right? So some churches have done that. When you look in Christadelphia, uh, there have been a few different things that people have tried to do with those as well. Um, some people have, have said things like, uh, well, and... This is not a lot of Christadelphians. Maybe this is like on the fringe. I don't know. But I, I read somebody saying this. They said, well, you know, the, the Old Testament is less inspired than the New Testament. I was kind of like, what? <laughs> they said, so see, you know, like people expressed this feeling in the Old Testament, but we just don't agree, right? Because the New Testament teaches us otherwise. And I was like, yeah, uh, no, that, you, you can't say that, right? Like, that doesn't work. So, okay, so, you know, but that, I think, shows you really the difficulty that people recognize when they come to this kind of thing. They, they read it, and they're like, ooh, what do we do? 
Um, other people have not said that the Old Testament is less inspired, but they've said, um, well, God was continually revealing himself. And so when the psalm was written, God was less revealed at that time. And he's more revealed now. So we know, according to the more revealed God, that, you know, that's not how we're supposed to be. But back then, he was less revealed, and so that was okay. And again, I, you, you can't do that, right? Like, the, you can't be like, oh, well, you know, Genesis chapter 1 is less revealed than Revelation 22. So yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, this is, this is one Bible that's written by, you know, one God. It's not like he changed his mind somewhere in the middle or something. So, so uh, I think we need to figure out, okay, what do we do with these psalms? So, and without doing weird inspiration things. So let's, uh, let's go to Psalm 69. I want to walk through a couple of these. Um, and in fact, Psalm 69 is known as one of the um, absolute most intense imprecatory psalms. So I want to walk through a few of these. Um, we'll look at Psalm 69 and we'll look at Psalm 109. So there's about, there's almost uh, 20 imprecatory psalms. Uh, I mean, it's, it's more like 15-ish imprecatory psalms in the Psalter. So we're talking about like 10%, right? So when people say, uh, you know, we're just going to throw these out and not pay attention to them, that's kind of a big deal. Like 10% is, you know, a lot. Like if your boss at work said, I'm going to decrease your wages by 10%, you'd probably be like, wow, that is really sad. <laughs> you know, something like that. So, so like 10% is a good chunk. So we can't just get rid of them. Uh, out of these 10%, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, the ones that we're going to look at, those are considered the most imprecatious of them all. So, you know, you might have thought that Psalm 58 was intense, but just wait. Okay, here we go. So let's look at uh, Psalm 69, and we're going to read through a few of these and try and figure out, you know, what do you do with this? Okay. So Psalm 69. Let's start at verse 22. Psalm 69, verse 22 says, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Just think about that, right? Let their own table become a snare. Now, again, I think it's one of those things that we just read over, but like, how does your table become a snare, right? I mean, there's not a lot of options for this. Like, tables are not usually considered dangerous. So, like, I mean, I think what he's, he's saying is, like, I, we want non-dangerous things to even become dangerous to these people. Like, that's how bad we want their life to be. So David is praying, like, when they're sitting at dinner with their family or something, like, let their table spontaneously catch on fire or something, right? And they're like, ah, you know, and like, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. So let their own table before them become a snare. When they're at peace, let it become a trap. So, you know, when they're having like a nice evening, like, let something terrible happen to them. You know, let them fall down a hole or something like that. Like, like that's, where, that's how David's feeling at this point. Verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So now he wants them to be blind, right? <laughs> Make their loins tremble continually. So he wants them to have, like, leg tremors the rest of their life. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. So now we're, like, spreading past, you know, this isn't just let them be blind, but this is, you know, their, their whole, like, family and extended family. Like, not, not just their tent, but he says let their camp 
<laughs> so like the whole thing. So anybody associated with these people, right? Like let them be a desolation or in other words, like let them die. So let no one dwell in their tents. For, verse 26, they persecute him whom you have struck down. They recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Now, that's pretty serious. No acquittal, right? This is like saying, you know, when they pray for forgiveness, don't forgive them. And can you imagine praying like that God won't forgive somebody? But there you go. So he keeps going. Verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So I think you can get a sense here of why this is considered to be one of the most imprecatory psalms, right? This is, this is really serious. Um, David is very upset about these people. Now, I said earlier that we were going to talk about like how this is used for justification. And I got to tell you that I would use these psalms for justification for my anger all the time. You know, it, it's easy. You look at it and you're like, well, David prayed, let them melt like snails. I mean, I'm not doing that. I'm just praying, you know, that they'll have a bad day or whatever. Like, like I think we could do that. You know, we could see that kind of thinking. So uh, now I got to tell you another story. Um, back when I was first involved at the Heritage School, so this is like 11 years ago. This was before I became principal. Back when I was um, the lunch monitor. <laughs> so... So uh, I, I used to be the lunch monitor at the school, and I'd go around, you know, and watch the kids while they were all eating. And uh, my wife, Ruth, um, taught at the school. She was a teacher. So, you know, I married, I married up, lunch monitor to teacher. Pretty good. <laughs> so anyway, okay, let's move on. So, so uh, um, she was teaching there, and um, the school decided to bring in a sister from British Columbia, to uh, who was you know a professional in teaching like engagement strategies and like critical thinking skills and whatnot uh, so they brought her in to kind of give us you know advice on how to do stuff so she came in and she was overhauling the school while she was staying with my with my wife who wasn't my wife then she was you know we were engaged so she was staying at at, uh, at my wife's apartment and uh, at that time I used to love to argue with people who uh disagreed with our beliefs so i i like that was like my entertainment so i would go to other churches and i would you know say hey where's the pastor like let's go argue right I, it was kind of a foolhardy kind of thing to do um at the time but i thought it was fun and I, you know i was like yeah take that truth in the face like <laughs> anyway that was how I thought about things. That, it wasn't a good attitude. Okay, so, uh, so anyway, I went to um, the main church here in Simi Valley where I live, Cornerstone Church, and I went and I met with the dean of the Bible college, and we had this big, long discussion about the Trinity. Um, upon leaving, I was in the parking lot, and I saw a person from work um, who I didn't know went to this church, but he was in the, he was in the parking lot. Uh, apparently he was training to become a minister and, and he saw me and he was like, Jason, we need to talk. So he came over and he was like, have you ever read John chapter eight? And I was like, yeah, I, I have. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, there it says before Abraham was, I am. And I was like, yeah, that's true. It does say that. But in the next chapter, like the same Greek is used by the man who was born blind. You know, they say, are you the man who was born blind? And he says, I am. And I said, like, you know, see, he's, he's not saying he's God. 
neither was Jesus. And so anyway, it, it went on like that. The guy got really mad. And um, he finally said, you know what? We've been talking a long time, and I realized what the problem is. And I was like, oh, really? Like, what is the problem? And he said, it's that you're going to hell. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, we're done. And he left. And I was like really angry after that. So I left, and I went to go talk to my future wife. Um, so I went to Ruth's apartment where Bev, this older sister, was staying. And I said to her, you know, I can't believe that this guy, like, wouldn't even listen. Like, I said all these good points. And, like, he, all he did is he told me I was going to hell. Like, and he was just all angry about it. And I was angry. Like, and I was yelling about how ridiculous he was. And, you know, I probably said things like, I hope bad things happen to him or something like that. And uh, so... My wife was like, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> and, and she was very good and calm and patient like she always is. Well, um, the older sister who was staying there came to her. I walked down the hall because I was like, when I'm angry, like I pace back and forth. So I walked down the hall and uh, this older sister came to her and said, you know what? You're going to marry Jason. So I need to tell you something. Jason has an anger problem. And I heard her, right? I was down the hall. I heard her and I came back out and I was like, I don't know what you are talking about. Like, I obviously don't have an anger problem. What I have is a biblical problem because when you look at scripture, scripture clearly tells you that when somebody violates the truth, you have to act like this, right? And I was like yelling at this poor older sister. And I said, you know, do you know what Acts chapter 15 said? And she's like, no. And it says that Paul had no small dissension with the Pharisees over the issue of circumcision. No small dissension, right? Like, <laughs> so anyway, I said, what I'm doing is biblical. And I walked away and I was like, ha, I showed her. Right? <laughs> okay. Anyway, those are, that's one of those instances um, where you realize years later that you acted very immaturely <laughs> and, and you are very thankful that other people were willing to be gracious to you. <laughs> so, these are the kind of things, though, that I use. You know, I, I'd use these psalms. I use Acts 15 to, to justify this attitude of being angry. Um, and I think it becomes difficult because as you go through the psalms, um, you do have to figure out, you know, what do you do with this? Like, if you don't think that the psalm is justifying being angry, then what is it doing? And uh, it becomes really tricky because if you take a look, you know, we're in Psalm 69. Just look at verse 9. You see what verse 9 says? Psalm 69 verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Now, the reason that that's significant is, uh, and if you don't have this written down in your margin, I, I suggest that you pencil it in. I mean, it's up to you. You can do what you want. But uh, you might find this helpful that in John chapter 2 and uh, verse, let's see, 17, John 2 verse 17 is a quotation of Psalm 69 verse 9. So that's John 2 verse 17. It's about Jesus. You know, this is when Jesus goes into the temple and he casts out the money changers, right? And the rulers come to him and they say, uh, you know, what, on what authority do you do this? And Jesus says, destroy the temple and in three days I will build it again. And it says his disciples realized that he was fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 9. That uh, zeal for your house will consume me. So, <laughs> if we come to Psalm 69 and we're like, oh, well, you know, 
clearly this attitude is not Christ-like. Well, actually, it is. You know, it's quoted about Jesus, right? And it's not just quoted there. Um, if, you, if you have a center margin, you might also see that it's quoted of him in Romans chapter 10 as well. So this, that same verse, Psalm 69, 9, is quoted in John chapter 2 and Romans chapter 10. So we have a little bit of an issue, right? If, if we say this isn't Christ-like, that's actually not true, number one. And in fact, not only is it uh, not not Christ-like, but it is Christ-like because it's about Jesus, right? So if you, if you come to Psalm 69, like, can you hear me? They're like using like a saw or something now. Yeah, we can hear you, Jason. Can you hear me fine? Okay, good. <laughs> so so uh, this is definitely about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just kind of tuck that away, and we're going we're gonna to work on this, you know, because I think it's good. This is the kind of thing that happens when you do Bible study, you know? You do Bible study, and you realize, like, whoa, like what I thought for years isn't actually right. You know, and you're, and you're kind of left in like this funny position of, well, then what is actually right? And it's the kind of thing where I think it's good to feel that confusion. And when you feel it, to just keep going, you know, keep, keep looking and find, looking for an answer because there always is one. So let's just tuck that away and let's go to Psalm 109. So Psalm 109, let's take a look at this. Psalm 109, uh, let's start at verse uh, 6. Psalm 109, verse 6 says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Look at this. Let his prayer be counted as sin. Right? Can you imagine, like, you know, kneeling down and praying that when, uh, when somebody that you doesn't like, that you don't like, uh, when they do the Bible readings, that, like, God sees that Bible reading as sin or something? Right? Like... This, this just shows, I think, really the, the depth of this frustration. So, <laughs> verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. <laughs> the ruins they inhabit, right? <laughs> like, wow. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Okay, so you, can, you, you get the idea. Yeah. As, as you go through, you know, this one just keeps going, right? Psalm 109. And again, we run into the same thing because if you look at Psalm 109 and verse 8, where it says, may his days be few, may another take his office, what we find out about Psalm 109 verse 8 is that once again, it is quoted in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I should be clear here. It's actually quoted about Judas in his betrayal of the Lord Jesus. So this is made to be a messianic psalm in which Christ would be the one praying this about Judas. That makes sense. So it's Acts chapter uh, 1, and it's verse 20. Where it is written in the book of Psalms, Acts 1 verse 20 says, May his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So you get this again, quotation of the Lord Jesus Christ of this imprecatory psalm. And so, again, we're left wondering, you know, what do you do about this? So, I'm going to give you uh, my suggestion. 
and you can see what you think about this. Okay, if you disagree with it, I'll still be your friend. It's okay. Uh, you know, you, you can decide. You can decide what you think. Um, these are clearly biblical. These are clearly inspired, and I think it was good for David to write this. I think it was good for David to pray these things. I don't think it is good for us to pray these things. I think it's good for us to read them, to recognize their context, and I think we also have to recognize, you know, this was Christ-like. Um, and, you know, we can't say things like, well, the New Testament doesn't show this, because it does. You know, when you, when you read Jesus' words in Revelation, things like Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, right? Like, that's not a nice thing to say. Like, if somebody walked up to you and called you that, like, you probably wouldn't be like, wow, I love you too. You know, like, that's, that's the kind of thing that is really intense. You know, that is an imprecation. That's a curse. And so you see this in the Lord Jesus. And I think the answer to all of this is a recognition that the Lord Jesus and David had the Holy Spirit. So they knew what was appropriate to say and what wasn't. Now, let me just give you a little bit of insight into uh, how I think that this kind of thing works, right? I don't, I don't think we often, you know, when we think the Holy Spirit, we think about like healing people and that kind of thing. We don't often think about, you know, how it impacted the way that people thought. So let's just think about this. In Luke chapter 7, you might remember the story. Luke chapter 7, the Lord Jesus goes over to Simon the Pharisee's house for a meal, right? He, he walks in. Simon doesn't wash his feet. Simon doesn't anoint his feet with oil or his head with oil, right? And uh, instead, the woman who was a sinner does that, right? She washes his feet with her tears and all of that kind of thing. Okay. Well, when she's doing that, Simon says in his mind, right, in his brain, he says this. He says, this man, if he were a prophet would know who and what manner of woman this is, right? So Simon says he would know who this woman is. Now Simon just thinks that, right? And the Lord Jesus turns to him and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you, right? And he, he tells the parable of the debtors in which he says, you know, two people were forgiven, one owed a lot, one owed less, which would love the, the master more? Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, that's right, this woman, right? <laughs> Oh, guess what, Simon? I actually do know who she is. And so, you know, according to your reasoning, I must be a prophet. But I'm more than that. Because not only am I a prophet, right? I just read your thoughts. <laughs> so, you know, what do you think about that, Simon? And, you know, Simon must, I think, have been pretty freaked out at that point. But uh, uh, this, this is the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus did. And, you know, you can just look up the phrase in Scripture. You'll see it all over the place in the Gospels where it says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said this. Now, that doesn't just mean that Jesus had, like, really good intuition or something. It actually means, like, Jesus knew their thoughts. You know, he looked at them, and he was like, oh, they shouldn't have thought that, right? Like, and, and that was the kind of thing he was able to do. And so the Lord Jesus could look at somebody, and he could curse them because he could say, I know your motivation for doing this. I know why you did this. I know what you're thinking when you're doing it. All of that. We can't do that. You know, we go up to somebody and we're like, wow, you know, I saw that you did this. And that's a bad thing to do. So therefore, you're a bad person. Right? And we, you know, we like to extrapolate things like that. But we don't know why they did it. <laughs> like, that's, that's the, you know, full-on reason. Maybe they don't even know why they did it. So, so like, 
yeah, we can say, you know, an action is bad. And I think we should, right? And that's where disfellowship comes into play and all of that kind of thing. Like, ecclesias do need to recognize, like, if an action is a good or a bad action. But we can't judge character and people. And that's where all of this anger stuff comes into play. So the Lord Jesus could get angry. He did get angry. The Lord Jesus could judge people because he knew what they were thinking. We don't. So I'm going to suggest to you that David could do the same thing. The Apostle Paul could do the same thing. We can't. And so when it comes to looking at these passages in Scripture, we can read them, but we can't follow them. And then in fact, I'm going to suggest that I think what Scripture calls us to do is actually to never be angry. Like ever. Never, never. So... Um, I know that that might sound kind of crazy and you might be thinking things like, oh yeah, well, what about let not the sun go down on your anger or, you know, be angry and sin not. Well, we'll get there. And I know I only have seven minutes left, but don't worry, we'll get there in seven minutes. So let's just think about this. Now, um, I'll, I'll give you some homework. You can do this if you want or not, but I'm a teacher and it's just, I can't help myself. So uh, in Proverbs, uh, if you just look up the idea of anger, okay? Right? If you, if you want to support this, I'm going to be looking only at the New Testament. So I want to give you some Old Testament stuff so that you can see that, you know, both parts of the Bible are fully inspired. So if you look at, uh, if you look at Proverbs, just search through Proverbs for anger, right? And I think you'll see very clearly that there's nothing good said about anger. In fact, it says things like, he who loves anger loves sin. Like, I don't think there's any way that you can spin that verse to make it be like, wow, it's so good that I'm angry. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't work. So if you look up anger in Proverbs, I think you'll see that. Where I want to go is come with me to Matthew chapter 5. Um, Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a really crucial um, passage in understanding this. So in Matthew chapter 5, um, this is the Lord Jesus telling his disciples how he wants them to act. And um, what's interesting is I think we often tell ourselves, well, we need to be Christ-like, and we need to follow God, and God is our example. And that's true. But it's really interesting when you look at the instances in which we are told to follow Christ, because I would suggest to you it's not actually as broad-brushed as we think it is. So um, let's look at one of those in Matthew chapter 5. So in Matthew 5, look at what it says here. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 48. So Matthew 5, verse 48 says, Matthew 5, 48 you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? And that's one of those verses that tells us to be like God. And so I think sometimes we say, well, you know, obviously God was angry, right? And his anger was kindled, right? And that's true. But look at what it says before that. It's, this is a qualified be like God. It's not saying be like God in everything. And in fact, I don't think we're supposed to be like God in his anger. So Look at how Jesus prefaces this. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, like, how are we supposed to be like God? Oh, by loving our enemies, right? Not by hating our enemies and praying that they'll melt like snails. We can't do that. That's not our way of being like God. Okay, you know, and then he says in verse 46, 
or sorry, in verse 45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So I think it's clear here, like, the way that we're supposed to be like God is not by following him in anger. Okay, if you're still in Matthew chapter 5, uh, this is our second to last verse. I just want to read a verse uh, here that I think, again, provides context for how we're supposed to be like God. It's verse 22. Uh, and I, this is part of why I'm reading in the ESV. I had always read this in the King James, which I think is great. I love the King James. Okay, so I want to make that clear. So if any of you are King James lovers, you know, don't be like, you know, mad. Because you're not supposed to get angry anyway. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, I think King James is great. But uh, if you're reading verse 22 of Matthew chapter 5, you're going to read it a little differently in the King James. Here's how the ESV reads. It says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay? Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, if you're reading it in the King James, you'd read something like, Everyone who's angry with his brother without a cause will be liable to judgment. Now, King James translators put that in because some manuscripts have that, right? Some don't. Whoever's angry with his brother without a cause. I would suggest to you that it's not actually supposed to be in there. And here's why. Have you ever gotten really mad and somebody came to you and said, you know, why are you so mad? And you're like, I don't know! Right? Probably not. Right? Like, there's never a time when you're angry at somebody without a cause. Like, if somebody came and said, why are you so mad at me? You'd be like, well, you did this and this and this. Like, you know, you can list all these big things. So... I, you know, I always read this verse when I read it the King James, and I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm fine, because I'm always angry with a cause, so, like, you know, there's no problem with this. And yet, I, I don't think that's what Jesus means. I think he's literally saying, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment, right? The end, full stop, like, if you get mad at somebody in the ecclesia, that's bad. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, okay, two minutes, and I told you that we get to Ephesians 4 with, uh, be angry and sin not. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. There's more that we could look at, uh, but I think this is a good spot to end. So here's the, here's the rebuttal, okay? So you may be thinking, well, what about be angry and sin not? Well, let's, let's deal with that head on here. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. And this is a quotation here of one of the Psalms. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And uh, I always used to think that this meant like you couldn't go to sleep while you were mad, I took this very literally. And so when my wife and I were first married, like I wouldn't let us go to sleep until we had talked everything out. So sometimes we went to bed really late. <laughs> She's a very patient person. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm changing slowly and learning. Um, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying. And you know, you might read it as saying, well, yeah, that's obviously not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying it's okay to be mad because anger is just an emotion as long as you don't do anything bad from it. Right? As long as you don't let it rule you. And I would actually suggest to you, I don't think that's what it's saying either. I think what the New Testament is telling us is, no, like, you can't actually be mad at all. So uh, let me give you a, a paradigm, a possibility here. Um, I would suggest that what Paul is, is working off of is what's written in Proverbs and what's written in Matthew, this idea that you can't actually, it's not physically possible to be angry and not sin. So Paul is saying this. He says, well, be angry and do not sin. Right. We can't do that. I think that's the you know, underlying understanding here. We can't do that. So therefore, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Right? Get rid of your anger as soon as you can. That's his point. 
Like, don't, don't even let it last for a day, he says. Like, when you feel that anger coming, say no. Get rid of it as fast as you can. Now, you might think, like, oh, that's a stretch. Like, where did you get this idea that, you know, you can't be angry, this underlying understanding that you're talking about? Well, I think Paul makes it really clear. If you go to verse 31, you know, it, I, I think he's saying, how clear can I make this? Well, listen for all the synonyms here for anger. Verse 31, let all bitterness, I mean, that basically means anger, right? And wrath, that definitely means anger. And anger, that means anger. And clamor, that's what happens when you're angry. And slander, those are the things that you say when you're angry. Be put away from you, along with all malice, right? I think Paul is like, and by the way, if you didn't understand what I was saying in verse 26, you know, in case this is kind of confusing, let me say it again. Don't be angry. 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 Did you get that one? Right? <laughs> like, I think that's, I, I feel like that's, you know, how he's putting it. Like, I want to make this very clear. You can't be mad. So, um, here's how to wrap it up. We're called to something really hard. And that is actually to be people who recognize anger coming on and saying, well, I can't be mad. You know, God calls me not to be mad. And, you know, this is the battle that we have with the flesh. That it's not just like, oh, well, this is just an emotion. Or I can be angry and not sin. No, like anger, allowing yourself to get angry will lead to sin. I, I, there was probably never a time in your life where you were like, wow, it's really good that I got mad. Because that, like, totally made the situation way better. Right? Like, it probably doesn't ever happen. And so we are being called to not get angry. And that, in fact, this is so heavily linked into our discipleship that Matthew 5 says, this is how we follow God, right? By putting away anger. So, that's your challenge. And uh, some of you might be, you know, locked in your houses or whatnot. You're stuck at home, as we are. And this makes it all the more exciting to not be angry. So, uh, I, hope, I hope that you get to practice that. <laughs> I hope that you're challenged by it. And uh, I hope that um, you're able to put that away and in doing so become more like Christ.